If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers question the prejudice of philosophy. Many see the search for universal truths about the world as the noble aim of philosophy. Yet our universities largely dismiss non-Western philosophy. Do we need to wake up to Western prejudice? Or is there only one right way to think? Going in search of the right way to think, we have Distinguished Professor of Comparative Religion and Philosophy and a Fellow of the British Academy, Chakravarti Ramprasad. Philosophies are prejudice, uh, whether it's Indian or Chinese or Western. We have Wiccan Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford and Fellow at New College, Timothy Williamson. Identifying ways in which you've been relying on false assumptions, which is the key thing. And finally, Nivi Manchanda, lecturer in international politics at Queen Mary University of London. So you can't take away the political context from philosophy, from thought at all. I really hope you enjoyed this week's debate. After the episode's over, you might also like to listen to episode 137, which focuses on non-Western philosophy in Thinking Across the World with Julian Pagini. You can also now sign up to a weekly newsletter from the Institute of Art and Ideas to receive a weekly curated selection of Philosophy for Our Times podcast tailored to you. To do so, head over to www.iai.tv and put in your email on the right-hand side in the blue box. While you're there, please do check out our podcast page, have a look at all of our episodes and subscribe today. Thanks so much for listening. Back now to Danielle Sands. So let's start with you, Ram. Do you think we need to wake up to Western prejudice or is there only one right way to think? Well, I think, first of all, I, I don't see those two as opposed. I think uh, philosophies are prejudiced, uh, whether it's Indian or Chinese or Western or Islamic, because most of the productions of knowledge, in, especially in the past and to some extent now, depend upon institutions, patronage, access, uh, which narrows down who are the people who are allowed to speak. And therefore, I do think that patterns of thought tend to be prejudiced. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to be, do want to look beyond um, what uh, specifics are of your upbringing and your training, and you want to speak to the human condition. Having said that, uh, it does mean that we have to entertain the possibility that there are many different ways of being right on different things. It depends on what it is we're being, you're thinking about. 
if you're going to say, is it right to think you can walk through the fabric of this tent, there's only one answer to it. And I don't know whether anybody in China or Africa would have come up with anything different. But what we uh, take to be the questions worth thinking about, a certain amount of overlap, different traditions might give different answers. And there's, there's as much contestation within any particular philosophical tradition as there are between them. So I think we should um, do the very boring thing and say, well, what does it mean to think? What are the kinds of truths we are talking about? What do we mean by truth? And how many times we can dis disagree on these things, which is, I suppose, what philosophers do. Thank you. Uh, Tim, is there any one right way to think? I think the idea that there's any one right way to uh, think for all the questions that you might want to answer is uh, ri ridiculous, although that doesn't mean that nobody holds it. Um, I mean, if, you know, if if you want to answer a question in mathematics, then a mathemat mathematical way of thinking is obviously right and, and a historical way of thinking is wrong. But if you want to ask a, uh, answer a question in history, then a historical way of thinking is, is right and a mathematical way of uh, thinking is wrong. And that ap applies in, in philosophy as, as well. So for example, in, uh, if you're doing the philosophy of sense perception, then you're gonna to want to know about the the psychology of sense perception and, and that kind of experimental way of thinking is going to be very relevant to your answer. Whereas if, if you're interested in a question in logic, then again, actually a more mathematical way of, of thinking uh, will be better. So um, th there is no one right way of thinking for all questions. And even for a, one particular question, th there may be several different ways of answering it um, you know, even within mathematics, for example, there are you know, geometrical ways of thinking and algebraic ways of thinking, all of which can get to the right answer of, of a given uh, question. So, um, so no, but of course, uh, some ways of thinking are better than others. And if we didn't accept that, we wouldn't be in a position really to, to criticize any way of thinking. I mean, as for the waking up from Western prejudice, I, I suspect that talking about Western prejudice would be about as useful as talking about Eastern prejudice. I, it's just lumping so many different things together that it's not a, a very uh, helpful category. I mean, I think in our thinking, we make all kinds of uh, assumptions that we, that we don't uh, reflect on. Then that prejudice in that sense is something that you simply can't avoid because you can never be fully reflective and aware of you, everything that you're assuming and aware of uh, everything you're assuming in the, in uh, in that awareness and so on uh, ad infinitum. So you know, I, I think it's also you know it's also the case that talking about waking up from prejudice makes it sound much easier than it really is because it, it makes it sound as though all you really have to do is as it were prick yourself with a pin and you wake up from your prejudices. But actually, I identifying ways in which you've been relying on false assumptions, which is the, that's the key thing. It, it's a very important uh, thing to do, but it's also a very difficult thing to do. Thank you. Nivi? Yeah, thanks. I just want to say that I'm interested in international politics, so for ideas for me matter in what they do politically. And therefore, I find the question quite interesting because I don't think there's one right way to think. I agree with Tim and Ram. But if there was one, then this, the formulation of this question suggests that that way is Western. So do we need to wake up from Western privilege, or is there only one right way to think? 
uh, it doesn't allow you to say, actually, maybe the only right way to think is an African tradition of thought or Eastern tradition of thought. Not that I'd like to say that, but it signals that Western hegemony is so normalized that that is the only way in which we are allowed to express ourselves. And then the, the other thing I want to say is that absolutely we need to wake up to prejudice. But it's not, that, it's not as easy as uh, exactly as what Tim says, because prejudice is so inculcated. So when we think about the works of Kant or Mill, who are pre prominent uh, Western philosophers, what they wrote about utilitarianism in the case of Mill or deontology in the case of Kant were deeply based on the ideas of colonialism and slavery. So you can't take away the political context from philosophy, from thought at all. Thank you. I mean, this brings us to our first theme, um, which is about the nature of philosophy, really, and what we're doing when we do philosophy. Um, so are philosophical truths universal? Nivi, back to you. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's pretty clear that I don't think they're universal. They are absolutely time and context dependent. That doesn't mean that they can't advance knowledge or can't give us correct roadmaps and ways of thinking, but they are, this is a tradition, the Western tradition in which I've been trained to. So I have to constantly teach myself and comment on that, that these traditions are, have been rarefied, that they come from somewhere, and often they come from very dirty and violent places. Tim. Yeah, well, I think you ha one has to be very careful about what is meant by universal truths. Um, I mean, of course, it's, it's clearly true that uh, certain ideas are ones um, which we can, on, can only be had in certain historical social circumstances. I mean, so there was, there was no chance of people in the Stone Age coming up with quantum mechanics, for example. And, um, and I think that's really um, absolutely clear. But, but that doesn't mean that, it, you know, just because the the truth or the, the principles that we come up with uh, could only be come up with in, in certain circumstances, that, um, that they're not truths about all time and all space. And I mean, if you, th you, know, if you think about something like the, um, the law of gravity, I mean, it, it wasn't as though the law of gravity only started operating when you know, the apple hit Newton's head or whatever. I mean, it was oh, gravity was operating all the time before that, and so th that's that's a, a a universal truth. I mean, the, whatever the correct law of gravity is, even though the circumstances in which it's available to be known may depend on all the social uh, underpinnings. Um, and of course, what people believe to be universal truths uh, varies enormously uh, from one society. To another, and from one time uh, to another. But uh, in philosophy, many of the the questions that we're answering are questions, of, roughly speaking, about the world as a whole. And uh, and so their nature is that uh, if they have a true answer, then then that answer is a universal truth because that's the kind of uh, question that we're asking. And uh, so it seems to me that it's actually clear that in, in many cases, uh, whatever the truth is about certain matters, it is a, it is a universal truth. But our access to it is, is very historically and socially conditioned. So philosophical truths are comparable with scientific truths in that sense? Yes. Thanks. 
Well, I think that um, we are in a relatively uh, unprecedented, I think, uh, time in global history when we are able to ask these questions about the claims that thinkers of different traditions have uh, made over the last 3,000 odd years, which allows us to uh, put some pressure on the idea of the universal. But it also means that we need to simultaneously occupy uh, two positions with this. One is to do with contextualizing the universal claims, to asking questions about uh, how it is that people make these claims. So somebody who's been working on uh, comparative philosophy, trained both in Western philosophy and in Indian and Chinese thought, I do worry about uh, the kind of narrative about philosophical thought that begins with ever since Aristotle. It's, it's what I call a sleight of hand universalism. Because on the one hand, it seems to be saying that these ideas are meant to apply to all of humanity and to human condition. And yet it turns out to have only been thought through by a set of people, white men, uh, over the last 2,000 years. So we have to subject the cultural and institutional claims of universalism to that questioning. And I say that as somebody who, if I switch my focus to the Indian, uh, classical Indian traditions, would say that I'm exactly in that same position because there was a very small group of men, Brahmins, who were entitled in many ways culturally to think through. And they weren't thinking that these thoughts only uh, uh, applied to them. They were also talking about the nature of existence, the nature of consciousness, mind, reality, external world, whatever. And they were talking about the human condition. But of course, it turned out that they modeled the nature of the human upon themselves. So what we need to do is to be asking questions about this institutional and cultural mode of claiming universality while also recognizing that the questions themselves need to be thought and rethought in terms of a non-provincial, uh, a counter-universal way of thinking. Many traditions have thought they have spoken about the human condition. We should be respectful and sensitive to what they claim. As it happens now, we are in a moment in, in global history in which one kind of cultural trajectory has had the last word. We must ensure that it doesn't remain that. So where do we go from here then? So if the, these different philosophical histories have both been universalizing their own singular experience, should we then abandon the idea of the universal? So no, what we do have is to uh, the capacity to focus on what kind of questions are being asked, but to not be exclusionary about uh, what the universalist answers are. So for example, if you're going to say, what's the nature of power? What's the nature of subjectivity? How should we act in the case of a moral dilemma? Now, the thing is, there might be overlaps and congruences between different traditions and how they've thought in the past and how we do now. But there might also be radically different answers which might mutually illuminate. So we need to find the, those kinds of overlaps, not assume or give priority to the one that we happen to be most familiar with, 
and be ready to be surprised from where it might come. I wonder if you'd like to respond to that, Tim. I don't think I radically disagree with with that. But um, no, I mean, if you again, if comparing philosophy to um, another subject, like for example, experimental psychology, which these days is done by people of all genders and races, pretty pretty much. But of course, it's all done within a fairly specific social setting of uh, contemporary universities. But it seems perfectly feasible that experimental psychologists will come up with truths about the the way in which um, human thinking and feeling function, which uh, are not just true about people in universities, but are, are, are universal truths ab about the, the the human species. I mean, historically, psychology has been subject to various kinds of prejudices and narrownesses, and, and it would be naive to think that it's completely free of them. But it, it also doesn't seem to be a completely infeasible uh, as, uh, ambition to, to come up with true general theories about the, the human on the basis of uh, a particular way of, of thinking. I mean, I, I'm give, in a way, I'm giving the, the example of experimental thinking because, it, because this is uh, not something that I have a great self-interest in because I'm not myself an experimentalist. But it, it does not, as it were, seem unrealistic to think that, that that method can actually come up with universal truths uh, of a broad kind about, uh, as well, how human beings work. As I say, despite its social situatedness. If I, if I may just comment. Up to a point, true, but we also are seeing research coming out which uh, shows how many of the claims about you know, the psychological lives of human beings then turns to have been really skewed by the fact that the people who showed up in the labs were white middle class American kids at Stanford and Harvard. <laughs> and it's turned out to not quite miraculously apply to a lot of other people. So we need to be in that in-between space where we are trying to talk about the university. You don't want to say, I'm only checking about these kids. But you also need to know that we are forever caught in that uncertainty about the n nature of the claims we make. And I think that's where the real point is, that it's not so much that we strive to speak universally, that as we acknowledge, we usually fail. Would it be a problem if philosophical truths were not universal? Many of the questions that we're interested in are, are the kind who's, if they have an answer at all, it's, um, it's going to be a universal truth in the sense of one that, that doesn't depend on, on when and where because they're, they're generalizations uh, which are not restricted in space and time or uh, whatever. And so if that were the, the case, it would mean that uh, they didn't have a true answer at all. So that, I mean, that would be a problem. A problem but yeah. but I, d I don't actually see any, any reason why it, it has to be like that. And, it, and, it, uh, and saying that they're universal doesn't, doesn't mean that uh, th they, they imply that, that everybody ex is like everybody else or, or whatever. And I mean, th th this, this kind of search for such truth is... Again, as, as Ram, I think, was, was bringing out, is, is not something that's specific to, to Western philosophy. I mean, it, 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 maybe all cultures have some kind of cosmology of their own, which, which is a, a story about 
the whole world w with, with universal amb ambitions. So that as it were, it's not some kind of pathology of our culture that we have those ambitions. It's, it's actually something that, that is m maybe pretty much human universal to want such a, a story. And, it, and it's not, I don't think there's any good evidence that we can't at least get closer and closer to one. So you said that this isn't something specific to the, um, the Western tradition, um, but I wonder if we could look at the, the Anglo-American tradition in particular. What are the, the particular problems with that? Well, well I, th I would say that maybe the main problem with the uh, Anglo-American tradition is that it doesn't exist. People sometimes use that phrase when what they have in mind is, is analytic philosophy, yeah. but analytic philosophy is, is practiced in in most countries in the, the world now, as I know from, from my travels. And it, and it did not originate in, in Britain or America. It probably, you know, arguably it originated in Germany, as it happens. And, you know, and now uh, it's practiced in India, in China, in, in Russia. And so there, there is no specific Anglo-American tradition. I mean, it's true that, as well, the tradition of analytic philosophy tends to be done in English, but the reason for that is that English has become the international language of, of science, so it's not something specific about that philosophical tradition. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yeah, um, I actually agree that there isn't one Anglo-American tradition at all. And in fact, reifying it as an Anglo-American tradition erases how much it has borrowed from and learned from the colonial encounter, encounters of people before it. And so... Um, although we are often taught about the Anglo-American uh, tradition. And within that tradition, there are so many, so there's the analytical tradition, but there's also the continental tradition, uh, which is technically the European tradition, but it, they bleed into one another. So the problem is actually not the tradition in itself, but how it has emerged and established itself and what it elides and the erasures it is kind of built upon. That's how I see it. Do we need to update that tradition or do we need to stop thinking about it in the way we do? Or? Yeah, I think we absolutely need to constantly update all traditions and all, I mean, one of the things about tradition is that tradition move, traditions move on and what is traditional today might not be traditional in 20 years time. So I think we need to constantly check and update our biases and it, there doesn't need to be always the right way to, to fix that. But as long as we're aware and as long as we're a little bit more modest about our claims. I think, yeah, that's where I'd go with that, yeah. I, this is not disagreeing with what you said, but it's also the case that within a tradition, you, you have to use the methods of that tradition to recognize your biases. And as where the, the, what one hopes for with a robust tradition is that it's got the resources to, to renew and, and correct itself. And of course, 
sometimes traditions get stuck in a, a dead end where they where they can't do that, and that's that's where it becomes very problematic because you just they just can't recognize their own limitations. Yes, I mean I think that's where I think the sharp end of the problem is, because I think uh, in theory and with many individual um, uh, analytic philosophers. Uh, I've discussed issues with and I've learned from, including Tim, I, I do find the recognition that if the analytic tradition is anything at all, uh, it is a sharp, reflexive awareness of its own methodology. But at the same time, we find ourselves in a strange situation in which the most of the richest, most well-resourced uh, universities and philosophy departments in the world, especially those in, in America and Britain, to a large extent, um, don't give any other, give space to any other idea of what philosophical methodologies are, where the cultural uh, resources come from, how these methodologies might be found elsewhere. I spent the first sort of 20 odd years of my career really dealing with exactly the kinds of questions that are seen as analytic, because they also happen to be asked in very different situations in the, in the Sanskrit texts of 1,000 and 1,500 years ago. And there the cultural barrier was you turn up and you say, I'm talking about, say, you know, the problem of reference or the nature of inference, or the nature of the arguments for the external world. And I just have people who think, well, you're going to tell us about nirvana next, aren't you? So the thing is, well, actually, that's an advantage that these traditions have, that the analytic philosophy, philosophical tradition lacks. But I wasn't going to. So I, the problem becomes a certain attitude which is institutionalized. And I think there is that gap between working and discussing with individuals uh, who have a commitment to cultural pluralism and finding that a tradition has become so powerful in a particular socioeconomic and global context that the uh, tenure lines, the appointments, are in the same kind of self-replicating fields. And then you have one person, two people on continental philosophy, and then one person on whatever non-Western stuff it is. That is the problem with analytic philosophy, not philosophy as conceptual analysis, but philosophy as it is encoded in the institutions of learning in the richest parts of the world. I think, though, that it, that's, that is changing. I mean, in a number of universities that I'm familiar with, people are um, thinking about how they're going to make uh, appointments in, in Indian philosophy or uh, Islamic philosophy and so on. And I think there's actually a... a quite rapidly increasing awareness that, that these other traditions do contain many thinkers who can, in principle, be, be studied in the same kind of way that, for example, Plato and Aristotle are already studied in uh, Western uh, philosophy departments. But I, I think one thing is that the analytic tradition is is not a very historical tradition. It's, it's one which, because it has a broadly scientific conception of philosophy, thinks that there's quite a, an important distinction between philosophy and the history of philosophy, just as you, know, you wouldn't expect that in a physics department people are spending most of their time on the history of physics. And, and in fact, it's the case that 
lots of areas of the Western tradition are also neglected. Uh, for example, medieval Western philosophy is very little taught in Western universities. But, um, and I think it's, it's also, if it's going to be taught, it has to be taught in, in a way that makes it come alive as philosophy. And I mean, the danger with some of these texts is that, they're, that they've, they've not been well translated and so that they just seem very obscure and, and you can't, it's difficult for pe people who are reading them in translation to engage with them philosophically. But, you know, I do think that that is, a, as it were, a teething problem and there's, I, there's no reason in principle why it can't be overcome. But, I mean, at the moment in Western countries there are actually not many people who are capable of doing the teaching that's required. So you can't expect a fast expansion, but there is an expansion, and, and I, I would expect that to be you know, a growing trend over a future. But isn't that in part due to pressure from the students rather than the pressure coming from, from academics themselves? It's the students who are encouraging us to decolonize the can canon, and academics are doing it under pressure. Well, yes, I think a lot of that, from what I know, has come from the students, and there's more and more appetite for knowing the context in which these philosophers that they study operate in and what other things and ideas that can challenge it that could be from other parts of the world but they could also be perhaps non-binary or uh, brown women writing about it so it's not just it's not just the fact that it's the western tradition it's also the fact that knowledge is produced in a certain manner and up till very recently by a certain type of person and students now start identifying themselves as more than just in this one category, also want that shown in their curriculum. That's definitely true of, the, of politics, but also true of history, and increasingly of philosophy. And I, yeah, so the pressure that I think does come more from students, but I'm sure there's appetite at, at all levels, including staff, yeah. Yeah, in my case, I've not been subject to any student pressure of that kind. It's just I've been exposed to people talking about really interesting ideas in uh, these other traditions and, uh, you know, in fact, both the Indian and the Islamic tradition, for example. I mean, Chinese philosophy is another area. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's just become obvious to me that these stereotypes are false. And, uh, I mean, the, for example, the, the stereotype of Indian philosophy as mystical rather than rational is just obviously wrong once, once you... In, find out a bit about it. But I do think it's, it's, it's interesting, though, uh, this dynamic between uh, students asking for the decolonizing of the uh, curriculum and uh, what the academics are doing in response. Uh, and I, I'm very fortunate at the moment because my, my son is uh, one of the very few people of color work doing um, his doctorate in classics, uh, which is, you know, by its very uh, structure, it has been very exclusive, and he's been arguing for kind of a post-area classical studies. And we're kind of seeing this from the two sides about how, when I began teaching, if I taught something called, I don't know, uh, the roots of Hinduism, I'd have the students show up, whereas if I said something about um, you know, comparative metaphysics, there wouldn't be. But now it is changing. People want to know, they start a new mod module on something called Metaphysics Without Borders. And immediately kids are like, yeah, we get the reference, we want to come in for it. The 
the, the difficulty comes at something that um, Tim was saying, that actually you know, institutions take a long while to turn around. It's not because you know, those of us in our 50s and 60s and 70s are still sort of, we are of course uh, caught in what we've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, and we can't instantly recreate our expertise, but it does take a while to be patient in the period when students want something and you don't instantly have someone to teach it. And that's the point of negotiation I think we're having. Some fields have changed very rapidly. History is changing a lot. You can't simply talk about world history as um, Europe in the world. You've got to have really provincializing Europe to think about the world. And the geographic possibilities have made that much easier. Whereas where you have things like literature and the move from English literature to comparative literature, from philosophy to having global philosophies, you're going to have to have a period of rupture when teachers are trying to teach what they are only themselves encountering. And it'll be interesting to see the next generation, your generation, in 25 years' time, you know, what you are being uh, pestered by the students to change. Can I just uh, tell an, an anecdote about student pressure. So my first teaching job was in Trinity College, Dublin. Um, and, and there, uh, until a few years before I arrived, one of the compulsory courses for philosophy students uh, was on Hegel. And this was eventually abolished because the students were complaining that Hegel was so boring. And by the time I'd arrived, all, those, all the students who'd been exposed to Hegel had left. And there was tremendous student pressure to study Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have had people say, oh, no, we've already done the problem of the external world with Berkeley. Do you want to do this in Buddhism as well? And says, yes, the same questions are asked in the same boring way by different traditions. I mean, the, the question is, that seems to be coming up again and again is, how do we put these different traditions in conversation? So I guess it's one thing teaching them side by side. But what kind of work do we need to do to put them in dialogue rather than treat them as separate entities? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are two or three different things. Uh, I, I think none of us disagrees that there has to be a, a diversification of the curriculum over a period of time. Um, but the mechanics of it are, are really challenging. I think the one thing that people do who have grown in, uh, you know, up working on a particular tradition is simply to uh, acknowledge the lack of knowledge of another tradition, listen to other people talk. Then you have people who say, uh, this question is so interesting and cross-cultural and goes across different traditions. While I lack the linguistic expertise, I want to work with people who do. And then you have yet another group of people who say, right from the ground up, we are actually trying to learn different kinds of traditions, maybe learn two or three different languages and work on it. And I think the number that's growing uh, in, in that sort of third category is, is indication of where the changes might happen. But when it comes to uh, what the curriculum teaches, I think there is a balance between uh, letting the historical, conveying the historical integrity of certain traditions uh, so that students get to see the past as well as the present of particular uh, patterns of thought, and having those where you do want to kind of rupture their assumptions about where the divisions are and where the differences are, and do much more explicitly comparative or intertraditional work. Too much of one, too much of the other, and you lose 
the, um, the advantages that diversity teaches, which is sometimes you have to work in the things you know best, but you don't make exclusivist claims about it. And teaching students that so that the next generation doesn't make those kinds of, um, doesn't contribute to institutional prejudices as we have faced in the last 150 years of the modern university, that's the challenge. Yeah, also I think one of the things that we can do is historicize some of those traditions and then ideas travel. But it's They'd, really interesting yeah. because, I mean, the one thing she noted, Tim, sorry to interrupt you, is that the analytic tradition is not a historical tradition. And I think this is surely one of the reasons that the analytic and the continental traditions have kind of butted up against each other because the analytic tradition hasn't accepted those sorts of approaches. So to hear both of you saying absolutely what we need to do is historicize is interesting here. Yeah, we forget that the world didn't have borders until very recently and that ideas traveled. So I know somebody who's working on David Hume and realized that some of David Hume's ideas came from the Jesuits, whose ideas could then be traced to the Buddhist and then could be traced further back to the Hindus. So there is a longer trajectory and there hasn't been that much work done precisely because those traditions aren't historicized. And I think that that should be one of the, it doesn't need to be the only thing, but that should definitely be one of the things philosophy does uh, better. The thing is that, it's, I wasn't saying that all uh, philosophical inquiry should be historicized. We should understand the historical trajectories which come right up to now. Yeah. But the really interesting things that I, I, I teach from the classical Indian traditions aren't to do with saying which text was written at what time. There's a different kind of history of ideas approach, a philo philological approach. The point is that these texts are giving us answers to questions we thought we'd already been tackling in the last hundred years. It's that it's philosophy, it's not just the history of philosophy. The, the idea is that these are living traditions. And if there has been a kind of what uh, you know, people call a hermeneutic rupture, that we've lost the continuity that the Western traditions have had into the modern period, then we must um, knit together the past with the present. Otherwise, it won't be philosophy. So when you're asking the questions, what really must grip the student is not when these arguments were made and what was the kingdom in which it happened or who they were talking to at that time, but what they say about the questions we can ask now. Tim. I mean, I, it, yes, I agree in, in principle, but the, the thing is the way that analytic philosophy tends to be practiced these days, it's, it's not engaging with very much with its own past, let alone the past of any other tradition. I mean, it's not that that you know contemporary metaphysics or uh, epistemology are being done in some kind of through engagement with the ideas of Plato or Aristotle or, or even or Kant and Hegel or whoever. It's it's proceeding in a way which is much more like that of a uh, a science. In other words, it's just it's mainly engaging with what's been happening over the last 30, 30 years, and I, I think that is. A, a difficulty in getting interaction going. I mean, that uh, e even, even if you convinced all analytic philosophers th that, that what was happening in uh, ancient India was just as interesting as what was happening in ancient Greece, it wouldn't actually make much difference to, to, to what they're, they're doing. And, you know, unless you can somehow show that, for example, that there's some problem with something that, that, that people are now saying that can be diagnosed and, and, or revealed as a problem through some you know, argument in, in some ancient text. But, but I mean, the, the difficulty is that when you have such a, a, a t 
developed <laughs> tradition. It's, it's hard to get that kind of individual in engagement. And as I say, it doesn't, doesn't really happen very much, even with the, the historical texts that are, uh, that are uh, clearly acknowledged as central to the, the tradition. So uh, as we were asking for it to happen from a, another tradition as well, it might be putting the bar too high. If yes, I mean, I think the, the, there are two different things there. One is uh, to ask that question about the scientization of analytic philosophy, whether that's the appropriate way of thinking about analytic philosophy, and that's a metaphilosophical question. But I think, at the very least, what we would say is, never mind the text from which I'm giving you this argument, let's just ask whether the answer that I'm giving to the question that you and I agree is a question, whether this answer contributes something different. Therefore, uh, in a way, although much disliked by traditional philologists and historians of ideas, is deliberately to decontextualize. Otherwise, we're never going to have a culturally diverse yet presentist way of doing philosophy. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. Do join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Chakravati Ram Prasad, Timothy Williamson, and Nivi Manchanda. Please do sign up to our weekly newsletter at www.iai.tv. Make sure you subscribe and head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review to help other people find us. And of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.